The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I started journaling in this notebook in August of 2018. Um, my only child, Ruby, was about to start her eighth grade year that year at Lewis and Clark. And, and you should know that everything that I'm going to talk about today, I do with her permission. I actually gave her a call at college this week to make sure we were good, that she was comfortable with me talking about this. You should probably also know that I'm going to talk about some hard things today. I'm going to talk about things like suicidal ideation and self-harm, and I just want you to know that whatever you need to do to take care of yourself and your family in this time, that you should please do that. So like I said, I started the spiritual practice of journaling in August of 2018, and, and what I would do is I would go to the daily lectionary. There's this daily list of scriptures that you can find the daily lectionary, and there's usually about about three of them, and then I'd pick one out and I would write in it. And when I dug out my journal this week, I was actually shocked to see how much I had actually written. I guess you can't see that very well on the screen, but I just, the pages and pages. And it was, it was surprising because I'm really not much of a journaler. I'm not, I'm not a good journaler. But I did this practice for about five days a week um, for about four months before January 14th, 2019. And it was that day, that night actually, after about six months of struggling with anxiety and depression and what was eventually we figured out was OCD, that, that my daughter Ruby was hospitalized because she was at risk for suicide. And I have this, this kind of crystal clear memory of waking up the next day and it feeling so strange that that Ruby wasn't in the house, you know, she was always there. And, and then remembering that she was on the fourth floor of Emanuel Hospital in the Adolescent Behavioral Health Unit. And I remember feeling a, a kind of mixture of shock, that like this is where things had gotten to, you never really expect that. And then I also remember a feeling of deep, deep relief that at least I knew Ruby was safe there because it had been so scary feeling like me and her dad, Matt, were not able to keep her safe at home anymore. And it totally makes sense to me now, but at the time I just remember being surprised by the relief and I think I felt a little guilty about it too. So that's how I felt when I sat down at the dining room table with my journal open that Tuesday, January 15th, and, and I opened the journal and I just had nothing. There was nothing I could write. And so I decided just to copy some words from the scripture, and I opened the 23rd Psalm, and I wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
and surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And that day I actually memorized that psalm. I just went through it. I memorized it. And it got me through a lot. It got me through Ruby's second hospitalization a few weeks later. It got me through weeks and weeks of what's called the partial hospitalization program. It's kind of like a, a day program with intensive therapy and medication management. And, and I just remember riding up and down the elevator to that program with the other parents dropping their kids off and praying that today would be the day that we all found some hope. Yea, though I walk through the valley. And so this song got me through the reality that Ruby wasn't able to finish her eighth grade year of school. She finished up in something called the homebound program. It was not a great schooling option for her. I think the technical term they use for it is dumpster fire. <laughs> you can ask me about that later if you want to hear more about that. I imagine that program works for some people. It did not work for us. But eventually that summer, the meds started working. Praise God, can I get an amen? And the therapy started working again. Amen, right? Amen. Ruby got back to school for her ninth grade year to start at Central. And this started me on a journey of learning about the youth mental health crisis in our country. And it got me learning that we are so not alone in this and not really in a good way, right? And you've probably heard about this on the news and it's likely that your family or someone you know has experienced it. And, and that's because the numbers are really stark. An organization called Springtide Research Institute did a, did a large survey recently of Gen Zers. Now, Gen Z are young people ages about 11 to 26, give or take. And the study found that alarming percentages of young people are struggling. Here are some of the numbers up on the screen. 47% of those surveyed said they were moderately to extremely depressed. 53% were moderately to extremely anxious. 57% said they were moderately to extremely stressed. And 45% said they were moderately to extremely lonely. Now those are self-reported numbers from one study, but the clinical data reflects this reality as well. The National Institutes of Health reported that in 2021, 18.9% of youth ages 12 to 17 were treated for mental health concerns. And 11.3% of children ages 5 to 11 were treated for their mental health. And that included kids who had taken medications or received counseling or therapy from a mental health professional. And so that's about one in five adolescents and one in 10 children who were treated for a mental health condition in 2021. And the self-reported numbers from Springtide show that, that many more are struggling and either things are untreated or maybe they're just kind of on that cusp of needing some kind of clinical intervention. And, and the trends in 2023, as far as we can tell, are just getting worse. In fact, since I've been at St. Andrews, I've been frankly alarmed by how many parents I talk to, like not, not really on purpose, I'm not surveying people, but just in the, in the course of conversation, I found out how many of us are struggling, just like Matt and I did, to navigate the complex emotional dynamics and family dynamics and healthcare systems and school systems, all the complicated ways that we have to try to hold things together when our family is experiencing mental health struggles. And you know, Matt and I, and Ruby, we were some of the lucky ones. We were, we were so lucky 
we, we had access to the care we needed. Yes, we got bounced between psychiatrists a little bit. We had to wait for that partial outpatient program a little bit. But by and large, we had access to care. And that is not the case for everyone. Because alongside this crisis in youth mental health is a crisis in the youth mental health system. We desperately need more of everything. Inpatient beds and therapists, psychiatrists who specialize in children and adolescents, social workers, all of it. In fact, if you are hearing my voice and you feel called in any way to try to support the mental health of young people, please take that next step. Follow up if you're being called. We need future psychiatrists and psychologists, therapists, behavioral health nurses, and technicians. We need you. Our kids need you. And so we have this youth mental health crisis, like the numbers showed us. And partially, it's youth like Ruby who have experienced a diagnosed mental illness. And, and partially, it's just about young people who are living on that edge, right? It's those youth who report feeling stressed and lonely and depressed and anxious, and, and maybe they're holding it together and hanging on. In fact, one thing I know about these, these Gen Zers, including my Ruby, is that they are strong and resilient and brilliant, and they want a better world for all of us, and they struggle, just like all of us. And I've talked before about mental wellness being a spectrum, and it really is, and the reality is, is that a lot of families are, are struggling all along that spectrum. And maybe it's you, or your kids, or your grandkids. I'm sure it's somebody you know, which is why I'm telling my story today, because I want to help in any way that I can. So let me tell you a little bit more about my journey as a mom uh, who has had a child who's had severe struggles with her mental health. And I'm going to tell you some things that were helpful, and I'm also going to tell you some things that were a little unhelpful, so that'll be fun. but just in the off chance that any of this will help any of you. So, so let's start with the unhelpful stuff. Let's get that out of the way, right? So I remember a couple things. The first one was, I think, right in the middle of Ruby's eighth grade crisis. And in response to hearing that my daughter was in the hospital because she was so anxious and depressed that she was suicidal, someone said to me, you know, these kids, they're just on their phones way too much. Have you ever thought about not letting her be on her phone so much? And I'm not sure I've ever wanted to punch someone in the face as much as I did at that time. But I didn't. So look what the Holy Spirit can do. That is Christ in me right there. Here's the thing. I truly believe that people mean well. That also is Christ in me, right? <laughs> to be able to see that people mean well. I truly believe that pe when people say sort of flippant, easy things, like maybe if you just kept her off her phone a little more. I believe they do want to be helpful. And listen, I know all about the phones and the effect they have on dopamine production in the brain and, and the constant anxiety of social media, and it's almost certainly a factor in our present crisis, but it's also probably not the topic to bring up when someone's child is in the hospital or when they're vulnerable enough to tell them, tell you about their struggles. So have I ever talked to you? I don't think I have about the I'm so sorry, here's a Kleenex approach to dealing with these things. That's your best bet. Um, just words like saying, I'm so sorry. That sounds super hard. And it's always a good thing if you've got Kleenex around. When someone starts crying, just hand them a Kleenex. You don't have to say anything. You just try to be present and to listen 
And listen, I know it's hard not to give advice. I love to give advice. But I really feel like if people want advice, they'll ask you for that. And while we're on it, um, have we talked about the words at least before? Have we had this conversation about at least? Okay, we're going to talk about it now. Um, so I invite you to go ahead and expunge the words at least from your vocabulary. Just get rid of them. <laughs> Especially when you're trying to comfort someone. So like if you encounter someone who's struggling with, with their own or somebody else's mental wellness in their family, um, What's happening when those words at least are about to come out of, their, out of your mouth is that you're probably about to minimize what they're going through. And even if you're not trying to minimize it, I think what actually happens when that at least stuff starts going on in our heads is we're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to think about like, well, what would, what would I say? Where would I see the bright spot if this was happening to me? And that's okay, and you can keep that in your head but you don't want to put your way of making sense of a situation on someone else. I'm going to give you a quick example. Let's say your friend's child has been hospitalized for, for mental health, and it's July. Do not, under any circumstances, say to them, well, at least it's not during the school year, so they're not missing classes. And I share that because that is totally something I would think, because I've had this experience. It, is terrible to try to navigate the school when you're trying to navigate the mental health. But even though I think that, for the love of all that is holy, I should not say that out loud. And that's because folks, they need space to create their own at least in these situations. You know, we all have the capacity to find hope in hard situations. I know we can all find reasons to be grateful and, and move forward in the midst of crisis, but it really, it has to come from outside of us. It can't come from someone else saying, hey, you know, you really should be grateful about this thing. This doesn't seem to work that way. Does that make sense? But when we listen, we provide the space for someone to tell their story and to, and to start to make sense of that and to see what maybe they might be grateful for in the midst of it, and, this, and I think that's what gives people the ability to find hope. In fact, it was kind of fascinating to me as I revisited um, my journal from Ruby's time in the hospital. I actually found a list of things that, that I was grateful for that were giving me hope at this time, and I think I have a picture of the journal page up here. So this was the day we had our family meeting in the hospital with the psychiatrist and therapist when Ruby was still hospitalized for the first time. And these are the things that were giving me hope, that, that Ruby is smart and that she's strong. She has all these resources, that, that Matt is faithful and Matt is reliable and that I'm strong and I was hopeful. We had access to medical care. There were caregivers who were kind and, and helpful and I knew there were support people praying for me and they had offered other support. And there were other things too, like we had health insurance and we had enough money to pay for the deductibles, and I know not everyone has those things, and that is an evil that we should resist in the world, but that is another sermon for another time. And I also was kind of surprised that I wrote at the bottom of the page, God who transformed the cross into life can transform even this. Listen, I found it surprising that I could even go there in the midst of that time. And I think it's a gift from God that I could see these things in the middle of such a painful experience and it, it felt like nothing but grace. 
And what was critical, though, is that these were my thoughts. Nobody, nobody told me that I should be grateful for these things, that I should be thinking these things. These were the things that I actually believed, that I actually was grateful for, and they didn't come from somewhere else. And I think maybe the journaling, the conversation with God was what helped me reflect on those. Okay, so I'm going to tell you some other things that helped as well. A few years after that eighth grade year, I told this story in a similar way at Hanscom Park Church during a sermon, and this wonderful man, uh, this ch the chair of my trustees committee, he came into my office after me afterwards, and he found me, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, you are a good mom. And he told me that when his daughter was a teenager and she was struggling and he didn't know what to do to help her, how much it meant to him when somebody told him he was a good dad. And so he told me I was a good mom. And that meant the world to me. In fact, hearing from other parents who struggled was hugely important to me during those times of crisis. And, you know, this is a little dicey because in other situations, I, I might tell you, like, don't jump in and share your story because you don't want to just talk about yourself. You've probably heard that advice before, right? But in those days, man, I was so grateful to hear. And this was mostly I heard this in an online clergy moms group that I'm a part of. But I was so grateful for the people who said to me, you know, I see you and your situation, and that's really hard. And, and then they would say things like this. My child was hospitalized for mental illness, and now they're in college. Or they'd say, or now, and now they're the dad of my two grandchildren. Or now they're happily living on their own in another city. And none of those people were ever saying to me, oh, don't worry, everything will be fine, because they didn't know it would be fine. I didn't know if it would be fine. But it meant everything to me to see just one example of one kid who was struggling even in the ballpark of the way my kid was struggling, and they were okay. And that gave me hope. So I can't promise you anything, but for what it's worth, here's a photo from when we dropped Ruby off at college out of state this August. This is not something I thought I'd ever be able to do. So one more thing, because I think it's helpful to say out loud, when it comes to mental wellness for you or for loved ones, it's a journey. There are going to be ups and downs for sure. Yea, though I walk through the valley. So remember how I told you Ruby was doing well at the beginning of her freshman year? I don't know if any one of you were doing the calendar math there. But uh, that happened uh, in 2019, and the spring of 2020 was, what happened? COVID. That's right, everybody groaned. We hated that. I know it was bad for you, too. Well, I would say, in retrospect, things slowly kind of unraveled for Ruby from then until the middle of her junior year of high school. And at that point, there were a couple months of almost daily mental health crises that resulted in her having to leave school, there was an incident of self-harm that resulted in us having to lock up the knives and the pills again in the house. There was one extremely difficult visit to the emergency room. And we needed to find her a different schooling option because school just was not working for her. And it was kind of like we were having this eighth grade year crisis all over again. 
And during this time, Ruby would have these episodes where she would kind of just cry and almost scream in pain. And it was so hard to watch because from the outside, as her mom, it really looked like it was like someone was physically hurting her, but the pain was emotional. And these episodes would last for hours sometimes. And so I had to learn to sit with her during those times because I had to. And I can't describe my ability to be able to be there with her when she was in so much pain as anything short of a miracle for me. I'm not a calm person. <laughs> I'm not a patient person, and anyone who knows me. And it just required something beyond me. And I remember one day in particular, Ruby had been crying for what seemed like hours. And often when this was happening, she kind of resisted being comforted or touched at all. She would almost just flinch sometimes, like, like me trying to help her was just adding to her pain. And so I was there. I was just sitting there. I was sitting on the floor of her bedroom while she cried on the bed. And it just it seemed like her crying was never going to stop. And so I said to her, Ruby, will you please just stand up so I can give you a hug? Would you please just do that. I'm sure I was crying by this time too. And I said, please just stand up. And she did. And I wrapped her in my arms and she was still crying so hard. And all of a sudden I thought of this parenting book that I had read when she was little. It was called The Happiest Toddler on the Block. Have any of you read that? Do you know this book? No, it's a Gen, I don't know, Gen, Gen Xer thing. I'm not sure. Anyway, one of the premises of this book is that, is that when your child's emotions are out of control, like our kind of reaction is like, oh, we need to be super calm and quiet about this. But actually, when, when you do that, your child, your, your toddler doesn't think you understand them because your emotional level isn't matching theirs. They think you don't get it. You don't understand how much it hurts. You don't understand how much pain they're in and how much this matters to them. And so in order to connect with them, you have to meet their intensity level and show them that you are feeling that too, that you understand how much it hurts. And it seemed a little crazy, but I was desperate because I had watched my daughter in pain for far too many hours that day and far too many days that year. And so as she screamed and cried, at the same volume and intensity, I prayed the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He prepares a banquet for me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me. And I prayed it over and over again at that volume until I noticed her crying get just a little softer. And so I prayed it again. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And over again until her crying got softer and softer and she kind of relaxed in my arms until we were both breathing slowly together, and the psalm was just a whisper. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
and she was calm enough so that she could go to sleep. And I could head over to the hospital to visit a parishioner because I was, of course, still a pastor at this time. And this visit was to a family that I had been spending a lot of time with lately. Their 19-year-old daughter was in the ICU on a ventilator. She had some kind of non-COVID infection. She had been in the hospital for weeks. And as I sat with her mom that afternoon, both of us looking at this young, frail woman in the hospital bed, her mom said to me, Pastor, if I could take her in my arms and just bring all of her pain into me, I would do that. And I said to her, I know you would. And I did know in a way that I never would have known before that afternoon. And, you know, I don't think that knowing caused me to say anything differently. And I don't think that knowing caused me to do anything differently. But I felt like I could just be present with this mom because of what I had just experienced as Ruby's mom. This young woman from the ICU, by the way, is back in college now after a long healing process. And not every story I know has a happy ending, but this one did, thanks be to God. But as I look back at it, I am just awed. I am awed by God immediately, immediately redeeming the pain of my experience with Ruby. I see how God used it to make me a better pastor an hour later. Now, I want to be very clear here. I don't believe God causes the suffering of mental illness to to teach us a lesson or to accomplish some greater purpose. But here's, here's what I do know. Here's what I do believe. And it's something one of my mentors, Pastor Vicki Flippin, said one time in a sermon. She said, when we confess and we cling to the story of the resurrection, which is one of the foundations of our Christian faith, when we cling to that hope that Jesus dying on the cross, that that did not have the last word, It reminds us of this, that God can take the worst thing the world can throw at you and create life out of it. God is present in our suffering, but not just present. God is at work in our suffering. God is at work redeeming our suffering. God is doing something with it. And sometimes we might see that immediately, and my God, is that a gift? But probably more often. We see it as we watch our lives unfold with newfound strength and compassion we never dreamed possible. God can take the worst thing the world can possibly throw at you and create life out of it. I believe God is doing that right now. Would you pray this psalm with me? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.